Parliament House. Tel Aviv Mainstream, as yes. we've come to call it. I'm Pramit Chowdhury. And I'm Ayelet Chaimzen Lushkov. And this is the fourth time we have been recording this opening. But we've learned something about how our microphone works. We learned that you should turn it on before you start You shouldn't recording. mute it. You should not mute it. Yeah. You bought me that nice mug that says you're on mute. Yes, we zero. are geriatric millennials. Or just geriatric, as the case may be. Geriannuals. Geriannuals. It's like a geranium. Yes. Also a flower that I associate with the elderly. Geraniums. Yeah. You, you associate that. them with pubs, don't you? Yeah. And petunias. I guess pubs are also associated with the elderly. Yeah. We have a geranium at home. I like geraniums and pubs. All right. Well, lest we chat our way into a fifth recording of uh, <laughs> this opening, this is episode two. And our movie today is called Peeping Toms or Mitzitzim, which has nothing to do with breasts, as Pramit has learned to his dismay. I, yeah. I really wanted that etymology to be there. Although breasts are not a insignificant part of the film. Mostly speedos. Mostly speedos. And we, I guess, should preface this entire episode with content warnings. The following content may contain scenes of a sexual nature. This movie is about sex and drugs. Mostly, and yeah. I mean, mostly about the failure to have sex. Lots of references to sex that is had not within the plot of the movie, but that has been had. There's also like a serious issue, which yes, was there, a there's... claim of sexual assault yes. about the movie um, that, that took place apparently. So in where, the where do you where movie. do you want to start? It's a very difficult film to talk about because normally we would have my excruciatingly detailed plot summary that lasts about as long as the movie itself. But this movie mostly comprises people in speedos chasing other people with no purpose. So we started watching this snootily and thinking that this would be, this whole season would just be like bro movies, but this is positively our house. Like this is legit. I was unsure. It's just a beachy kind of. When I started watching it, because it did seem a little bit like American Pie avant la lettre, a movie that I haven't seen, but whatever. But... It was so intent on bringing out the ennui and this general shittiness of everyone involved, apart from the main female character. Although she's kind of pathetic, so... <laughs> Who? Millie? Yeah. Summarizing it's about it's two hard. guys, one of whom, played by Alec Einstein, is a loser guitarist who's kind of playing backgrounds to all sorts of loser artists. And, and he is... friends with Gute, played by Uri Zohar, who is a lifeguard slash kind of overseer yeah. of the beach section slash beach bum. He's also a loser. And his main goal in life, well, both of their goals in life seems to be to just shag as many women as they can. But Orizoa also has this long term vendetta with these two guys who are part of the peeping toms who kind of try and peep into the ladies' showers Well, except the ladies all, showers right? I mean, because Gutta is also a voyeur. Yes. Like, the only person who isn't a voyeur is Alec Einstein, pretty obviously because he's better looking than the others, and so is actually able to have more sex than the others, but is also married, and therefore repeatedly unfaithful to his yes. wife. And a totally rubbish dad as well, we should yes. remember yes. that. So, so plot twist, Alec Einstein is married, has a kid, but Urizov basically seems to just chase the voyeurs 
Voyeurs seems like too fancy. They literally them. they're just like have kids holes in the caravan type thing. It's the women's showers. That's one. Yeah. But they also have where they stay or where Gutta stays. Yes. They've also <laughs> made holes because that's how they initially are able to watch Alec Einstein having sex with Dina. Yeah. So there's just kind of a pan voyeurism, right? Because yeah. like there's also voyeurism where the prostitutes are. That's and... not so much voyeurism as just. Well, Alec Einstein gets something thrown at him, right? When he's there trying to like. Because Gutter's around the corner with Booty, uh, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's so basi- just a lot of like voyeurism. Yes. So the coin of, of this particular realm is voyeurism and pants. <laughs> so it's it's kind of like a bohemian devil may care kind of just being a loser on the beach exploration of loserness. I don't know. So as a result, everyone's like wearing either speedos. Or super tight, like seventies jeans with like enormous some paisley, paisley and yeah. lapels. Well, but that's actually exceptional, right? Like he, Ari Einstein is wearing this paisley shirt, and he's wearing these these jeans, and so he looks a little different. So he's he's taller and he's like slightly better looking. He's he's shaven, right? Like Gutter is kind of not clean shaven, yeah. and and is actually criticised by people for being like having a you know messy hair yeah. and, and not being clean shaven. I mean, they don't criticise the fact that he's just in speedo the whole time, which to me seems well, whatever. except the guy <laughs> Captain Speedo Man. Well, he's got a hat. Is, yeah, who who is wearing a classic speedo and like a captain's hat, and who's Guta's boss and berates him for being. Yeah, seems to have known him since he was a kid yeah. and hoped he would make more of himself. Gute is a career beach bum, right? He's yeah. been doing it for 20 years. He's a pro. So... And he has that very therapeutic relationship with the sea because at one point when he gets into a, a kind of mock heroic fight to protect uh, Kainstein's wife, Millie, whom he's clearly in love with, but he, after the fight, says, like, I need to go into the sea. And so he, like, runs off and get, goes into the water. So Like he... Melville. You might be aggrandizing it slightly, <laughs> for sure, yeah. When no, he has... When it's a, a, clearly, a, grim, a grim November There is clearly soul. something very, like... I mean, they're beach bums, but they do love their life on the beach and by the sea. They have these little, um, these little firecrackers. Yeah. And one of their, again, kind of juvenile entertainments is just throwing firecrackers at each other. Yeah. So the chasing, often in the nude, and the kind of... Faux fighting. There was that one mildly serious fight when Gutter tries to beat up that guy, or does beat up that guy yeah. who'd hit on Millie. But other than that, it's all kind of rough and tumble. So the movie itself kind of structurally is, as, as you pointed out, just an exploration of nothingness, right? Vacuity. That's what makes it our house, right? right that there's what, no redemption. Exactly. They just are that shitty. And well, you're like, don't. oh my God, they're literally going to show these people be shitty for like the whole movie. Well, they're not even looking for redemption. Well, they are, but normally, right, what would have made it a non-art house movie is if something had happened that was redemptive, right? Like they had made something of themselves, but the film's like, nah. <laughs> your first judgment about these people you were right <laughs> like, that, that's when I started to be like oh it's actually kind of a good movie <laughs> it is unflinching it is unflinching well and it's partially not fully autobiographical but Urizoa who plays Gute as we've said about two years after this movie will convert to well not convert because he was already Jewish 
is going to go upgrade. Upgrade. Go next level. <laughs> go pro. He's going to become an Orthodox Jew. And in these years, right before his, I'm just going to call it conversion. If you know, you know. He is starting to think more and more about the emptiness and nihilism and what the Orthodox call the empty cart of secular life. And so this movie is kind of the beginning of an arc of exploring and I guess critiquing that hedonistic lifestyle. Yeah, these people seem very like quirky and I, mean, I don't know how representative they are of a certain lifestyle, but it's pretty extreme if you're treating this as a symbol of secular life in general. It is a quirky slice of life. Yeah, like but it's, it's also like... I've heard all the idioms that they use, and if you want to find something, you have to look for it. I think I must have been told this, like, hundreds of times. <laughs> and that was the beach that my family would go to. Yeah, you said you recognized a bit of wool. Yeah, well, actually, so when I was there with my mother a few years ago, I was just like, I have no recollection of this place at all. But when I saw it in the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, I do recognize this. And so I wonder if it's been developed or something. There is apparently a mural that is an homage to the movie that has been removed. I think because of some of the controversy surrounding both the movie and then the mural. Well, that section of the beach is now known as Hofmetzitzim. It's the Metzitzim beach. Right. But, you know, the way they talk is just, like, very familiar and the whole beach culture. I mean, not the peeping necessarily, but the old people going to the beach in the morning and, like, swimming and doing headstands. That's just Tel Aviv beach culture that I still remember. It's it's kind of then, it ebbed and flow when I was growing up. The beach was less the center of the culture and then it kind of came back and now it's interestingly very Frenchified. But like for example, right, your grandfather lived near the beach, like he liked the beach, yes. right? But was not a loser. <laughs> was in no. fact a very qualified man, right? Who was yeah. very responsible about his job. And so that's why I kind of feel it's a bit funny to but treat this. I think this... like in his youth, he was, he would what? tell stories. I mean, not on this beach, in Golden Beach, the one that we went to. They would like cut class and go to the beach. But um, isn't that like the normal non art house arc, right? That is in fact the cliche, not the bad cliche, right? The good cliche, right? That you go through some kind of. I don't want to say rebellious, but like you go through your youthful indiscretions, your youthful like pushing of boundaries, and then whatever, you get a job, you do your military service. But this movie just doesn't have any of that at no, all. No, it is kind of about failure to launch. And... It's not even clear. Like, Alec Einstein is obviously a famous musician, right, as well as an actor. But like, we don't really get to see him perform. Like, he talks about playing the guitar, but then at one point in an argument with Millie, which has to be the single most self-undermining argument I've seen on screen. Like, he actually does a really good job of appearing terrible, right? He's like, I haven't even been able to pick up my guitar. It's so hard for me. It's so hard for me, you know, because all I did was get drunk last night and not come home and not, in fact, you know, sleep with some other woman, which obviously she suspects him of doing and is right to suspect him of doing. Well, and their, like, weird connection is also... They both keep saying that the other dragged them along and so they were dragged. I didn't know whether I was losing something in translation there. It's an etymological figure. Right. right? But it's very like, I got carried away. 
And this whole like, oh, well, I got carried away and you shouldn't make a big deal out of it is very like, it's at Israeli culture. I can't stand it. It's one of the many reasons why I don't live there <laughs> But like, you know, Israelis are very fond of saying don't make a big deal out of it. But I mean, obviously the film very much invites us to see that as a pretty lame defense, right? Like his defense of himself is I got carried away and we're just like, we know that that would be pretty bad even if it were true since your daughter is sat there in a crib and you've literally done nothing. Like when he's in the scenes with his daughter, he goes out of his way to be very superficial and like touching her hair or like making eye contact with her, but generally ignores his daughter the whole time. The mother will like have Guta like look after her for a few seconds, but is generally actually the person in charge. And the black mark against her is that she really does love this loser, right? And doesn't seem to see any viable alternative. In fact, is like trying to get back into his affections after he kind of throws a little like baby fit. Yeah. I didn't really know what to do with it at the end. I was just like, you have out French the French. This is so nihilist. I don't really know. It is French New Wave. <laughs> so Wikipedia tells me. Not... So I also read that it was a response to Zionist cinema of the previous generation. We've only seen one film for this podcast, right? Yeah, and, and it wasn't so... especially Zionist. No, and so I didn't know what Ulhizaha was really responding to, but I have to infer that... I'm not talking on a technical or cinematographical level. Like, maybe there were aspects of technique that he was also moving forward or moving in a different direction. But I did have the sense that there had to be cinema before this that was not so nihilistic, right? And not so bleak and not about people literally doing nothing. It was basically waiting for Godot and Speedos. <laughs> yes. Except I... they're not even waiting. Like they're literally just waiting for some hot tourists to come along that they can hit on and probably fail to have sex with. And in fact, that's the gag at the end of the movie, the closing gag. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know, we're not especially concerned about spoiler alerts on this podcast. No. It's a classic. Like, everyone who would be listening to this will have already seen it. And anybody who hasn't seen it, nothing happens. So I would encourage those people who haven't seen it to watch it. You mean Colin and Winona? Sure. But to stick with it. Because the... The beginning is awful. Like, it's not that it's cinematically bad. It's just, like, very confusing and dark. And it kind of makes you think... I mean, it's it's visually dark. But it's also weird. Like, from the beginning of the movie, you think that it's going to be about... Well, exactly about what it is, but not in the same way. Well, I had no Just... idea because I actually I did not look at the synopsis before I watched it. And I thought one of two things would happen. I thought either there was going to be some redemption for some of the figures, but not for the others. Or they were all going to get punished. But I did not expect it to just be completely repetitive. And when I say that, it sounds as if it's a bad thing. But actually, I think that's what makes it a good film. Well... But you do have to bear with it. If you go into it and you're like... I want there to be dynamism about the plot, then like you're going into it with the wrong frame of mind. And to some extent, I did expect there to be more in terms of a peripatia, a, you know, some it's pivot, so you know, but like there's no, you're constantly expecting a pivot, but there isn't. So here's a completely uninformed theory about what's going on here. So I assume, I mean, I don't know what's the Zionist cinema of yesteryear that this is responding to, but if any of our listeners no, then they should write to kalkarahouse at gmail.com and tell us all about it. We got a very, very good email from Vishala. Yeah, um, we already talked about that. Yeah, so the bar has been set high, is yes. all I'm saying. But Zionism is a kind of inherently optimistic endeavor, 
right? Because it assumes that whatever you think of the settler colonialism behind it, it assumes that there is hope and that a plucky small group of Jews will somehow withstand the might of all the Arabs around it. Presumably that wasn't the original Zionism. Presumably the original Zionism was focused more on escaping largely European persecution. Original as in original to the 19th century, not original to whatever. Like, yes, but even then, the that assumes that there would be a national home and that... I just right. mean that it wasn't necessarily focused on... Well, Israeli Zionism. Yeah. Right? We can go back to, like, Pinsker and auto emancipation and, you know, that kind of stuff. But right. I don't think we need to go that, that far back. So in one way, the nihilism and the circularity, right, is responding to something very teleological and optimistic about the early Zionist film, which I am guessing were all about the foundation and the ra-ra-ra. I mean, I'm imagining it like the Aeneid, right. <laughs> which, which might be completely... So, um, I mean, I don't know about unfounded. Uri Zohar, but like the producer, I think, was an um, activist for better Israeli-Palestinian relations. I've, I've now forgotten the producer's name, but uh, but I don't know what the relationship was between the producer and the film, other than the fact that he produced it. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how much it structures the ideology or the perspective of the film. It might all be Uri Zohar, but... Well, and I don't know what his personal politics are, other than, obviously, that he would go on to become an orthodox rabbi, yeah. right? Not just an orthodox rabbi. But it's more the idea that a foundation has to go somewhere and it has to progress, right? Buildings have to be built and roads have to be paved and wars have to be fall and, like, all of that stuff. Whereas this is very, like, hang out yeah. on the beach kind of movie. Which is interesting that we call them loser, right? Because as your rabbi and mine, David Quint, would, would say, right, the, the opposite to the Aeneid-style linear teleology is kind of going around in circles, usually at sea. So possibly there's, like, some of that. Well, and it's the world of romance. Exactly. Of people Romancing. trying to, you know break into castles and snatch damsels who are actually not in distress until yeah. the night comes along but anyway. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting... Uh, we, we can unpack that in a minute. So the other part of it, which is kind of like antithetical, is that this is, I think, made in 72. And the years between the Six-Day War in 67 and the Yom Kippur War in 73 were very euphoric, hedonistic, like Israel kind of drunk on its own success and in some ways you get some of that in the film right both the beach is a escape from everything else that goes on which is a very kind of typical I think Israeli mindset you go to the beach to relax and to like escape your troubles but it's also a kind of in some sense a Zionist fulfillment right it's a success story because they can just sit on the beach and be losers and it's okay, right? They're not harnessed in the name of some larger national project. They're right. just beach bums and it is possible now for there to be Jewish beach bums. Yeah, and, I mean, to that Jewish extent, it contrasts with the previous film we saw, which, as much as it's satirical, is still very much centred on... I mean, as much as it's centred on a kibbutz, right? It's centred on a lot of activity for the kibbutz, like planting and yeah. farming and all of the rest of it, which goes hand in hand with Zionism. And here, there's none of that even in the periphery. 
it is the film as if none of that was around. It's and very actually, I, sort of Aristotelian, I right? Read, the unity of place. Did I see contemporary Israeli cinema? has seen the rise of some filmmakers who would really like to tell stories that are not concerned with politics in the more literal sense. There was one about, like, cannibal women novelists or something like that, which looked quite intriguing. I don't know whether it's your kind of thing, but... Cannibal women... Yeah, I mean, it is possible I've... Uh, I don't believe so. I think that salient detail would have stuck in my mind had it been the case. No, I just saw a reference to it the other day that there is a sense that you know, we have to deal with Israeli-Palestinian relations, we have to deal with religion, we have to deal with these very standard and in a way almost cliched topics. And there must be a way to tell narratives the way that any filmmaker would do in any society which isn't to reject any of the issues that are important. It's just to say, like, a flourishing film culture is diverse and tells lots of different kinds of stories, including about, you know, shitty beach bums. Well, and that there are these stories to tell, which is itself, I mean, not a radical stand, but, like, in terms of the way Israel is consumed in the world, right? That it's a kind of a monomyth, right? Colonialism and occupation on the one hand and oppression on the other, which is all well and good, but... It doesn't make it the case that there aren't other stories and that people aren't living lives of importance. I'm reminded of the argument that sororities that behave shittily are still, in some sense, a positive story, because why should it be the preserve of fraternities to behave shittily? (laughs) (laughs) You know, these things are always, you know, complex and... I think I've said this in our last episode, it's a complicated place with complicated problems, but not every story or everything that comes out of Israeli culture needs to necessarily be freighted with the Palestinian conflict, religion, etc. In the same way that not everything that comes out of American culture is freighted with the sins of the American past. Although increasingly we are now at a moment of reckoning and so we are kind of seeing well here right the the problem was the reverse right the mainstream culture found it all too easy to just not engage at all with any of that whereas actually in israel it being a more politicized society as well as left right it means that culture does engage more explicitly and i think that partly explains why you have some of these new filmmakers saying we need to do other things as well whereas yeah here it seems more as if People are saying, wait, we kind of haven't paid due attention to these facets of our our history. So I think to understand this film, right, I mean, you you do kind of have to talk about sex because it's basically what the film is about. Yes, it's about... Or not having sex. Well, it's about trying to have sex. Right. Trying to have sex is a motif in several of the movies that we will... Why is that? I mean, it is a thing that people do, so <laughs> sure. <laughs> that does... Israeli women are known for their chastity and purity of mind. <laughs> <laughs> I can only assume. No comment. <laughs> I guess that's what people do, right? Yeah, it just seems, like, unexpected. So I was hoping maybe that you would be able to explain why it would be a more substantial topical feature of the cinematic tradition. Because it's the explicit engagement with it, right? It's like, 
people trying to watch other people in the nude, people like trying to have sex with other people, well, it is a sexual very... assault, right? Like it's a film that not only is very concerned with that, that kind of makes sense in this, you know, beach bum context maybe. Although I didn't necessarily assume that beach bum equates to like peeping toms. That seems like a... Well, they're like, not peeping toms. Well, they are. That's what I'm saying. Like they're pretty hypocritical, right? They're not as bad peeping toms <laughs> as the other ones, but they're all like... Well, the other ones are like kids, right? They're like teenagers who are just desperate for any contact with the sexual. Whereas Gute and Ellie are like adult men who, you know, they don't peep the old On the bathers, yeah, exactly. On the old exactly. ladies in the showers. Yeah. So I guess it's a different kind of... Yeah, it's a different kind of voyeurism. It's actually a worse, in some ways, worse voyeurism, right? Because obviously what the little kids do... I mean, they vary from a kid who seems to be like 15, right? To kids who are slightly older. Yeah. What they do is purely voyeuristic, although, you know, obviously not okay. But then what you get in the case of Goethe and Eric Einstein's character is something that is unfaithful, violent, right? And yet somehow the film skirts that line where it almost wants us to like them. Well, so I was struggling. While obviously I was struggling. you shouldn't like them. <laughs> I was struggling with this because I don't know if they're supposed to be charming or not. To me, all I see is like typical Israeli masculinity that I find inherently off-putting. You seriously think the audience likes them? I don't know. Did you ask your mother? I did not ask my mother. You should ask your mother. Because she would also be able to report to you what her friends thought of her or other people thought of her at the time. I couldn't believe it. Like, I cannot believe that you're supposed to watch that film and not think to yourself, isn't it interesting that I feel ambivalent about these obviously despicable people? I mean, I will ask her and report next time, but you'll remember that when we watched it, we started watching it with her, and she was a bit... I thought that was just because the kids were there, and it was a little awkward because it's, you know, explicit film. And so I didn't know whether... I suspect that her view on the film now would be different than her view... Well, I mean, she was nine when it came out, so I imagine she didn't watch it. Sure. Yeah. But it was such a, like successful film. I mean, it's an award-winning film. Well, right? so actually it wasn't very successful when it came out. But mm. then it became a cult right. movie. But the awards must have been won at the time, even if it wasn't successful at the box office. I couldn't tell you. And you might have one of those, right? Because the same was true for some of the classic Indian films, right? The Bengali films that we, we looked at, where, you know, art house audiences in Berlin or whatever mm. were like, oh, this yes. is great. But it's not necessarily the case that the domestic box office is that great. Yes. So, I don't know. The sex in this movie is... Unvarnished. Unvarnished, <laughs> yes. But also, I guess we should talk about the, the scene. The <laughs> most controversial would, one, I would yeah. preface it. That this is a culture that actually has a song, the lyrics for which are, when you say no, what do you mean? When you say no, you mean yes. What kind of song? It's a popular A popular song? song. Yeah. Wow. I would sing it, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the news, right, Consent about... Consent culture is yeah, problematic. Uh, exactly, right. All of the news has been about the military in particular, right, and high-ranking politicians yes. and generals being rapists, basically. So you definitely have to fit the film in that context. Because I imagine a lot of the people who were disgraced were, given their age, young men at the time this movie would have come well, out. Well, this is where, you know, feminist intersectional theory says, right, that you can't 
You're going to get fired from Texas for talk like that. What? That you can't occupy it? feminist intersectional, like, that's it. The Liberty Institute will have you for breakfast. It's not CRT. (laughs) Besides, you're going to get on the anti-Modi list first. I have no comment on the farmers. (laughs) Anyway, so one of the things that intersectional feminist theory says is that there's an inherent connection between occupation and military aggression and violence against women and misogyny. Now we're going to get angry letters. I think this is something where you can't separate this film, hedonic though it is, from the realities of war and occupation, which has by now been going on for nine years. Official occupation. (laughs) So that's just kind of background. But I mean, don't you also think of like generic, shitty, misogynistic, Mediterranean, patriarchal culture? Is beach culture in Greece or Italy or anywhere else? where there has been a kind of projection of masculinity of a certain sort. Like, I would be unsurprised if there weren't films taking a somewhat similar view. I guess. I don't know. I have not been on a beach in Greece or Italy or France, so I couldn't tell you. But I imagine that, yes, there is this swaggering speedo. As you know, I was in a cab in Athens once where the cab driver literally said, you can lean out and grab someone if you want. And we were all like, uh, sure, that's definitely, definitely what we'll be doing. Can you please take us to the airport? A prostitute? No, I think he was just saying that you could like grope someone. He was clearly a thoroughly bad person, but we were stuck in his cab. He then ripped us off and dropped us like half a mile from the airport. Wow. It's the 1990s. No, I don't want to use, like, one person as... as But I'm just saying, like, you know... And I actually, when I was... Where was I? Kos, maybe? Like, some Greek island where there's a lot of partying. There were, like, some pretty dubious individuals. I mean, they're always... always Beach culture, club culture does lend itself to the appearance of certain guys. Yes. Right? You know, the same is true for nightclubs and cold parts of the world as well, right? I don't want to suggest that this is, like, limited to certain parts of the world and not others. But I just mean that, like, the particular topical focus on a type of man who's, like, at the beach, shirt off. Like, the film satirizes it through these minor characters too, right? Like, the guy who essentially tries to rape Millie out at sea, right? They're on a paddleboard and he's clearly like hitting on her and has certain expectations because she got on a paddleboard with him. What she was trying to do for our listeners is just to wind up her husband. But then she scratches his face pretty well. And then that is why he comes with his boys to like do a number on Gutta. But he's just a pretty boy. So he ends up getting his nose broken and... um, I must have missed that whole bit. That's the thing, right? That's how the film generates this ambiguity that shouldn't be an ambiguity because like none of this changes the fact that he's an awful person but Good he's presented as like kind of being in love with millie and wanting to protect her apparently though behind the scenes Arik and Shina and are both in love with oh sure i forgot her name sima something as in for real for real yeah and then eventually Arik Einstein divorced his wife and married her And they lived happily ever after until he died recently. So I like that the true story is redemptive in some limited way. Yeah. But that is an obvious contrast to the plot of such (laughs) a Again, this is like Wikipedia gossip, so who knows. But like when Orizor converted, his kids of whatever gender are married to the children of Arik Einstein and Sima. 
I mean, it's not that that's actually messed up, but in light of the film, it feels pretty weird. And, and they also converted when Urizawa and his wife converted. Oh, uh, okay. So, turtles all the way down. I don't know, whatever. It's just random gossip. But all of that, right, as you've said, that kind of bespeaks this normalization or regularization or maturity, right? Like all of the real life stuff. I think it's worth distinguishing here, though, that Ellie, Ayakanshin's character, is a douchebag, right? He cheats on his wife, neglectful of his daughter. He, like, hangs out at the beach and throws racket, you know, younger beach bums. But he's a kind of run-of-the-mill douche. Whereas Gute, ironically, whose name means good, is, on the one hand, a more charming kind of guy. And is given these more pseudo-heroic scenes, yeah. like defending Millie. But also it's just like, he's I mean, a he's the one who like sleeps with prostitutes. That actually turns out to be one of his few consensual relationships. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So, so we should say that the most yeah. controversial scene is a sexual assault, right? The, it is reported, and obviously, you know, we have no way of knowing, but like it is reported by the now, I have to get this right, it is a relative of the actress who was in the film. Mona Zilberstein. Yeah. She didn't report it. It's her relative who reported that she was actually assaulted. Yes. But this came out much, much, much later. So it was not known at the time. Anyway, obviously that informs how you then view the film. But even setting aside that question, the character is a rapist. He just wants to kind of connive and possibly get women drunk. Like, that's another obvious tactic, right? In order to have sex with them. And there's something, like, really... The way they film part of one of the scenes where he uses a hose to clean her after she goes to the beach. Yeah. And it's very, like, phallic. <laughs> In such an obvious it's way, funny. it's kind of ridiculous. So then he, in this incredibly sinister way, closes the gate before going inside... And he told her that there was a towel there, but he knows she isn't going to find it. So he knows that he has to go in to give her the towel himself. And it's like thoroughly creepy. Yeah. So the film is not pulling its punches at all. And so that's why I'm just like, I need to know. Surely no one at the time saw this and thought this was okay, right? Like no one thought, ah, the high japes of this gutter guy, right? I hope not. But like Israel's had various cases recently of gang rape that seem to generate a genuine debate about whether these guys are guilty or not or have just misunderstood or she's misunderstood or they were just having fun so i don't want to speak ill of my country well i just mean that like i I also i don't think i could be wrong but i don't think the film is trying to be ambiguous Again, maybe I'm just misreading it through my so very, it's a cult, like, 21st it's, century eyes. It's a cult eyes, classic, but... right? And it gets quoted a lot, especially that scene where the faux trial of Altman. The... So the kid, who's one of the peeping Toms, is basically just trouble waiting to happen. So he's like a younger version of these guys. He's obviously, like, up to no good, nothing good. He ends up having sex with the prostitute that Gutter has this, like, weird long-term relationship with it's his only like long-term relationship so there's lots of humor surrounding this kid one of which is probably the funniest scenes in the film is that he's enormously well endowed and at one point when Ilya and um and um Guta are kind of threatening him uh, he says what do you want and Arakanshtin says to him I want that <laughs> <laughs> all, all meanwhile this guy's like 
crotch in his speedo. It's yeah. Like in it's... sharp silhouette against <laughs> the camera. So, yeah, so Altman, his father runs a cafe or yeah. a restaurant, and Ari Einstein's character wants to convert the basement into like a discotheque or something. Yeah. It's like a great 70s word. I'm like, no one ever uses the word discotheque. But anyway, it's just a thoroughly impractical idea that this practical owner of a restaurant is like, yeah, none of this is going to work. You know, yeah. It's just the basement. Like. So the son is just a complete, like, up to no good kid. And he is grabbed by two of the other losers, whose names I've completely forgotten. But their only role in the film is basically to throw bombs in the water to catch fish. And to peep. And then to run around and, naked and, and be, chased. be chased. So they're like the Jason lesser or greater. Yeah, the Jason and Howard. <laughs> Howard. Exactly. Yeah, they are the Jason and Howard of this. Yeah. Go and look up, take that if they're referencing. Talk so, about geriatric movies. <laughs> anyway, they have captured Altman and they've put him in a net and basically have suspended him above this really... Which, again, is a classic. Like, as a child, I remember, you know, this would be a common threat that if you were too snooty, then your friends or, like, cohort would cover you in a blanket and beat you up. It's not a very soft culture. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, within that scene, it's supposed to be funny, right? The kid's really annoying, And these two guys are also really annoying. They're all really annoying. But this is their moment, right? I mean, in terms of, like, giving them a scene where... Well, one of them, really. The other one doesn't have such a big part. But one of them is given a chance to have this speech. So do you want to explain what the speech is? He's just parodying, like, lawyer speech. I meant to look up whether he's parodying an actual politician, but I didn't. So we will remain uninformed. But he basically does a whole trial. Yeah. And the first line is, you know, on the six of the six. And that that's very, like, people quote that a lot. But my initial point was that, though this movie gets quoted a lot, I had never in my 40 years heard that it was rapey. Was it that just because you think people took that to be self-evident? Or? I don't know. Maybe. It's a strange truth to, to, <laughs> to hold self-evident. The key issue here is the character of Dina, who's a woman that... Uh, Einstein sleeps with who is staying with them she's largely just there because she's just hanging out at the beach yes and so um, well she's a groupie right she's at the club right but she just happens to be staying yeah I can't remember why she's staying maybe she's like not from Tel Aviv and so doesn't have a place to stay. But she right. went to this show in this club and Alec Einstein picks her up there and uses the, like, company car to take her back to the shed on the beach. Oh, he's massively in debt. That's the other yes. thing. Yeah. Along with his many other good qualities. Uh, where, he, where he asks Gute to, like, borrow his shed for nefarious purposes. Right. But he kind of wants to pass her on to Gutter and is like advising Gutter on how to approach her to have yeah. sex with her. And, and Gutter is just clearly impatient end... and does not want to do what Alec Einstein suggests. So, I mean, you basically just go from bad to worse. On her part, I mean, she is pretty clear about what she does and doesn't want to do. But it's unclear yeah. to me whether what is clearly the freedom of the beach and discotheque culture in the 1970s, right? But I didn't know whether there was even the slightest sense that, you know, there were mixed signals or there is a certain amount of legitimacy granted to young men or any of the stuff that obviously, you know, you would hope would be self-evidently wrong now. But I just, it wasn't clear to me whether there 
anyone would read that differently. To me, the film seems pretty clear, but, you know, I do have an open question about whether my view would be shared by the 1970s audience. I do not know. So we've talked about speedos and bottoms. We've talked about rape. We've talked about music. It's very Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe would have totally, like, saccharined it. Like, not everyone would have succeeded, but there would have been a redemptive plotline, for sure. There would have been no art house there. No. This has that classic, you know, Sisyphean French quality. It's like repetition, futility, and, like, moral judgment. (laughs) Even within this vacuum, you can still, like, have moral judgment. There's nothing liberating about it. (laughs) And yet, it's aired every Independence Day. I mean, that is strange. Like, on the one hand... It is a classic, and classics exert their own force, like qua classic, right? But on the other hand, it's aired every year on a day when people are likely to watch it, and what is it that they're getting out of it? Joy. Sure. (laughs) But what is the messaging they're getting out of it? And has that changed over time? I don't know. Like, you know, I haven't lived there in 20 years. Um, (laughs) And also I'm the wrong person to ask because I I would have been... I think you need to, like, tap your sources. I inquired yesterday about the landmine and they... they Oh, that particular idiom? Yeah, they had no answer. Yeah, there's some insulting of a mother that happens and I was trying to understand what an idiom was. I think it means that she's a piece of shit. Because until I was, I don't know, nine or ten, like, you couldn't take a step in Tel Aviv on street without encountering blah, blah, blah. okay so i think that that is the reference but i don't know women don't play a very big part in this movie so there's that passing reference to someone's mother but there's basically dina millie and there's ruti and that's about it they're very much women who are used and abused yes all three of them i don't know if we need to beat that metaphor over the head no i don't think so no i'm just saying that that is just the nature of the gender difference and it's not that there aren't female characters but those there are the three of them but that is pretty much the unifying feature yeah it's a very sort of masculine film they're old ladies they're abundant old ladies especially the one who when one of those firecrackers is thrown inside the shower stalls thinks that uh, it's the, the fatah <laughs> yeah which yeah. itself seems satirical, but yes. yeah. But the, the old ladies are actually the ones who are treated with the most affection. But that also because they are not to be used, right? Yeah. Briefly saying something about the music. So obviously they don't subtitle the music. Was there anything to be said about the music in the background? It's kind of listenable. Is it by Einstein? I don't know. It sounded like it was. It, it sounds like it. It's very like guitar-y, yeah. you know, Mediterranean music. It's quite, That's quite nice. That's what you do, you know. You go to the beach with your guitar. You light a bonfire. You like play cover songs of like, I don't know, Johnny Mitchell on your guitar. And then you like go skinny dipping <laughs> and, and carousing. And you wake up in the morning stinky and then you like go home i mean like this is the life that my parents wanted me to like do. this is what teenagers do i was always like what would i possibly want to do that <laughs> that just seems a dirty b stinky and c just like liable asking, to leave you in problematic situations yeah <laughs> this is the life your brother was denied um <laughs> i don't think that's what he thinks he was denied but he's not a big bonfire getting <laughs> dirty kind of kind of guy um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's mysterious to me. Do you know what film we're going to watch next? Because I have to uh, 
get in the right headspace. I was taken by surprise with this movie. <laughs> well, there are mm. options. We can continue to explore the Horizon Ouvre, because this is the first of a, a trilogy. So we can go down that nihilistic rabbit hole. I think the other one that I had lined up is Give Atrafon is not responding, which is a comedy about the army. Yeah, I think those are our current options in the kind of 70s. Anyone who wants era. to have a vote, yeah. write to us. And we may or may not take it into account. As per usual, our decisions are often led by access. But we will do our best to we source will, material we that, will do, that the people want. If the people make themselves... They clamour. Well, the people have time to clamour because the right we're going, we're going to record the next episode before. I think we're bound to chronological order. If the people clamour in two weeks' time, then uh, we can still make it happen. But it might not be the next episode. No, no. We um, do not deliver on time. Yeah. And in that, we are consistent yes. in everything that we do. We overpromise and underdeliver, which is not good. <laughs> but on that note, we should go fetch our children, lest we overpromise them freedom and <laughs> underdeliver. It's also raining and we have to back out. Out of a swimming pool. Yeah, an enormous puddle. We didn't have biscuit report. <gasps> I really need a biscuit. Okay, well, then we shall have a biscuit on the road as I go, when I go. What does Ella say? I can't remember. No. Oh, I don't know. Um, en passant. I just have no idea. Um, and... Oh, we can report on this biscuit next time. We'll report on this. It is an Italian biscuit. But, you know, we are coming up to biscuit season. It's November the 3rd as we are recording, and pretty soon Central Market will be bedecked. <laughs> Sorry, I've just just nodded incredibly suggestively at at my wife. And I think we all know what that means. Fafranusa. 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 And those Italian, like, things with the apricot jam. It's a very suggestive little, like, hand gesture that you made there. We've clearly been spending too long with this creepy (laughs) beach world. No, man, this is how I feel about biscuits all the time. Creepily. Uh, It depends on your perspective. What's the worst that can happen? (laughs) And on that note... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, we'll see you all next time whenever that, that, that should be <laughs> and until then a bientôt <laughs> bye bye